basketball players play basketball. Singers sing songs. What do Christians do? Warren Buffett's disciples studied to make good investments. Martha Stewart devotees love fancy homemaking. What do the redeemed of Christ want to do? It's really a basic question, isn't it? What do Christians do? What do Christians want to do? And as you remember, we saw how Peter's first sermon led to a great conversion so that there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And as this passage follows that event, we see here what the early Christians were like and what the early Christians did. And so this is a passage where we ask and answer the question, what do Christians do? What do Christians want to do? And the first thing that we see is that the early Christians were devoted to God. They were devoted to God. So verse 42 we read, and they devoted themselves. The word devoted here, the Greek word for devoted means to stick by something. It means to be faithful to something. It means to persist in doing something. It means to busy yourself with something. It means to persevere in doing something. In other words, when these 3,000s, they heard the preaching of God's word from Peter, and they were struck with their sinfulness. And they realized that Jesus was their only hope and that Jesus is such a Savior that he receives and welcomes and forgives every sinner who calls upon his name. When these 3,000 people, they were converted to the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the way they experienced their conversion was more than just having some religious feelings about Jesus. Rather, for these 3,000 people, conversion meant a sustained change in terms of what they found pleasurable and valuable. So that their new life in Christ meant persistently saying no to many things that they once held precious so that they may continue to say yes to what became to them matters of first importance. That's how the 3,000 people experienced their conversion, not merely with emotions, but with a sustained change in their lives so that they became devoted. They were sticking by it. They became faithful to it. They persisted and they busied themselves and they persevered. And so they learned to say no to many things that were once important to them so that they may continue to say yes to the things that became profoundly important to them. Namely, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So let's look at these things in turn. First, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. 
And what's remarkable here is that being filled with the Holy Spirit did not make them dismiss either the necessity or the importance of study. And it seems to me that's one of the indications when we meet uh, many, many Christians today who in the name of the Holy Spirit eschew or reject, neglect the study of the Bible, you see immediately that is clearly against the pattern of what we see in the Bible. These Christians, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and yet being filled with the Holy Spirit, they did not think that they, they needed no teachers because they had the Holy Spirit. But instead, the Spirit of God led the redeemed of Christ to the Word of God. So as a result, these uh, Christians, they were hungry for instruction. They sought out the right sense of the Bible from the apostles. And God attested to the genuineness and the authenticity of the apostles' teaching through signs and wonders that they did. And, and by the way, that is really the function of miracles in the Bible. When we see miracles and powerful things that either Jesus or the apostles did, they are not there merely to entertain us or to shock us, but they are there to authenticate the message that is being preached. And so as the apostles proclaimed the word of God, God attested to the genuineness of their teaching with signs and miracles, and the Christians were hungry and they were thirsty and they sought out to understand the, the word of God, to grow and to learn. So that's what Christians did, and that is what Christians do. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, they were devoted to the breaking of bread. Um, I know it's not easy to see this, but I suppose you just have to take my word for it. Uh, the literal Greek expression is that, that they were uh, devoted to the breaking of the bread. And it's actually not the same thing as what we read in verse 46, just a few verses below. They were breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with gladness. In other words, uh, Luke is not repeating in such a small space eating of bread as a needless repetition. In verse 46, Luke has in mind believers sharing meals together with joy. But in verse 42, when we read that the Christians were devoted to the breaking of the bread, that is referring to the Lord's Supper. Uh, you remember in Luke's first volume, in Luke chapter 22, verse 19, Luke uh, recorded Jesus' words the night he was betrayed, how Jesus uh, broke the Passover bread, gave it to the disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so Christians receive the living bread with their minds by devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings, and they receive the living bread with their mouths through the Lord's Supper. And so every time Christians gather, they remember that the Lord Jesus 
suffered for them and in their place. They remember that Jesus was crucified in order to make atonement for their sins. And every time they gathered, they were devoted to not only to the word, but also to the Lord's Supper, remembering the Lord's promise, I will not drink again of this cup until I sit with you in my Father's kingdom. That's what Christians did, and that's what Christians do. We gather, we partake of the Lord's Supper, we remember what Jesus has done for us in his suffering, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his promised return. Thirdly, they were devoted to the prayers. And here, let me just read what John Calvin wrote, because he wrote it so well. Calvin wrote, Luke is referring to public prayer. So it is not enough for people just to pray at home by themselves, unless they meet together to pray, which is in itself a profession of faith. The Christians, what did they do? What did they want to do? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the breaking of the bread. And they were devoted to the prayers. They met to pray together in public. And so they were devoted to God. There's something else we see in this passage that they were not only devoted to God, but they were also devoted to one another. Now, you may have noticed that I left something out. But we are not skipping over it. Because we see here that the believers also devoted themselves to the fellowship. Fellowship. Uh, We tend to mean today, when we use the word fellowship, we have something like this in mind. When we talk about, well, Let's have fellowship together. We have in mind something like Christians gathering together to talk about God, maybe talk theology. Maybe Christians are gathering together to share prayer requests and they pray together. And maybe Christians are gathering together to share meals together. Now, of course, these are all wonderful blessings. And this is how we share life together. But when Luke says here that they were devoted to the fellowship, we need to recognize that fellowship here means something very specific. The Greek word for fellowship, I'm sure you've all heard of it. It's koinonia. And the basic meaning of the word is holding something in common. And what's interesting is that if we turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul uses the word koinonia, fellowship, for the funds that were collected for the relief of the poor saints. That's what fellowship meant in the New Testament and to Paul. And so there should be no surprise if we read in this passage, verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. That's, again, a word that's very closely related to koinonia because in common, Greek word is koinos. It's a very closely related word to koinonia. And they were selling their possessions and belongings 
and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In other words, uh, we need to broaden our understanding of what fellowship is, and we need to actually fine-tune what we understand by fellowship. To us, fellowship most often and mostly means spending time together. And of course, that's wonderful. And that's how the body of Christ is built. But in this passage, as well as elsewhere, when, when fellowship is mentioned, it usually means sharing of possessions, especially for, those, uh, for the benefit of those that are in need. And this is the verse that makes us really nervous. Uh, because people throughout history have argued that this is what true Christianity is all about, that Christians should have no private possessions and that Christians should hold everything as common property. And we get nervous about uh, its implications if this is how Christians are supposed to live, to sell their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And so I think this is uh, something that requires some careful attention. And we will see this throughout Acts, but already we can see here that Acts, the book of Acts itself does not forbid private property. Look at verse 46. The Christians were breaking bread in their homes. Apparently, people still had their own homes. They were not selling their homes to put it into the common purse. And throughout the book of Acts, as well as in other parts of the New Testament, we see that private property, possessions, are not condemned so long as people use them according to God's purpose. And there's no hint that having possessions or belongings is sinful. As a matter of fact, we will meet throughout the book of Acts rather wealthy individuals who would underwrite uh, various missionary endeavors. And there's no, no implied or explicit judgment towards them, but only approval and praise. And so we need to understand that that the scripture does not forbid private property. And the very fact that one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal, the very fact that that commandment exists uh, tells us that there is such a thing as a private possession. Because if there is no private possession, thou shalt not steal has no meaning, you see. And so the first thing to notice is that the selling of possessions and belongings were entirely voluntary. And it's, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because this passage is coming on the heels of Peter's first sermon, after which more than 3,000 people were added to the church community. And the sudden influx of more than 3,000 people into the church community created obvious logistical and practical needs for these new converts. You see, they all needed to be housed. They all needed to be fed. They all needed to be clothed. As long as they remained in Jerusalem and received their intense uh, instruction before they could return home with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what we read here, the believers selling their possessions and belongings, this is not uh, 
a mandate that is obligated unto us for every time and place, but rather this is a, a report of a re- very remarkable work of the Spirit in a very remarkable moment in history. There was this tremendous and urgent need to care for more than 3,000 people, and the Holy Spirit wonderfully moved the people with means to give in to the work of the Lord, to support the work of the Lord. And so we need to recognize that this is not a mandate, but a report of a very remarkable work at a very remarkable moment. That is to say, the Bible does not mandate foregoing all private property in order to follow Christ. Now, no doubt, God calls some people to do just that. Do you remember the young rich ruler who came to Jesus? I've kept all of God's commandments. What do I still lack? What did Jesus tell him? Sell all your possessions, give them away to the poor and follow me. That's exactly what Jesus told him because for him, money was his God, money was his idol. And he needed to be set free from the bondage. And so no doubt, for such reasons and and perhaps for nobler reasons, God calls some people to give away everything that they have. But for the most part, God calls Christians to be good stewards of the good things that he has given them. And he certainly calls Christians to be generous with people in need. And so how we exercise stewardship over possessions and belongings is not something that should depend on commandments and mandate, but rather it's something that flows out of our love, love for God and love for the needy people. So on the one hand, we need to avoid the error of insisting that every Christian must live like this because that is certainly not what, Christ, uh, what the Bible teaches. It is a report of a very remarkable work at a very remarkable moment in history. On the other hand, we cannot at the same time dismiss the Scripture's call to every Christian to be generous, to be kind, to be loving towards those who have needs. So on the one hand, they were devoted to God, and and on the other hand, they were devoted to one another. And that brings us to the third and the last point. They were devoted to a new life. Now, these early Christians had a wonderfully balanced life. Look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So Christians worshipped together in public and met in their homes to share life together. So there was both public corporate element in their Christian life as well as private, uh, what you might call home fellowships. And notice verse 43, and all came upon every soul as they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to, to the breaking of the bread, to fellowship and to prayer. And verse 46, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
So joy in the Lord and awe and reverence before God went hand in hand. Uh, Christian life becomes unbalanced if it is only public worship without home fellowship or if it is only home fellowship without public worship. And likewise, Christian life becomes impoverished if it is only joy without fear. Because joy without fear is really not joy, but frivolity. It's levity. It's silliness. And fear without joy is just as wrong. Because you see, our Lord Jesus, he's not an undertaker. He's the one who empties the tombs. So we need to have both. And this is the way that the Christians were so wonderfully balanced. Public worship, home fellowship, joy, fear. And as the believers devoted themselves to God and to one another, God worked through them in a marvelous way. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Isn't this our heart's desire? Isn't this exactly what we long to see? We long to see the Lord add to his church. But it is God, God who does the work. The Lord added. The saving of souls is his work. Our work is to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship to the breaking of the bread and to the prayers. Now remember I explained to you earlier what what it means to be devoted. To be devoted means to stick by something, to be faithful to something, to persist in doing something, to busy yourself doing something. It means to persevere in doing something. It means steadfastly saying no to some things that we may constantly say yes to other things. It means learning to say constantly to no to good things in order that we may learn to say yes to better things. Let me say that again. It goes without saying that we should say no to bad things. That goes without saying. But to be devoted to God is not merely learning to say no to bad things, but it means learning to say no to the good things of life in order that we may learn to say yes to the better things of the Lord. That's what Christians do. Now, certainly these past couple of years have made church life very difficult. We haven't been able to meet together for, uh, to build our life together, to share our life together as, uh, with much freedom as we, uh, we would like. At times, <laughs> illness that has swept through the congregation has even made times of worship difficult. And we certainly live in challenging difficult times. But this is our target. This is our desire. This is our goal, to be devoted to the Lord, to be devoted to one another, 
to be, to be devoted to the apostles' teachings, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayer. Would you, would you think about the way that you live? Whether your devotion to the Lord enables you, allows you to say no persistently, not just to the bad things of life, but to the good things, so that you may say persistently and constantly yes to the better things of the Lord. Because that is what Christians do, and that is what Christians want to do. And as we devote ourselves to the Lord, may the Lord work through us in a marvelous way. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, would you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for instructing us this morning, for teaching us what it is that Christians do, what it is that we desire. And we desire more than anything to be devoted to you and to your body, to your people, our brothers and sisters. So we pray, O oh Lord, please reorder our desires, our priorities, that we may choose the better things over the good things of life, that we may always choose you over the things of this world. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.